Good morning. My name is Michael. Our scripture passage comes from Mark 11, chapter, the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. First, let's pray. Dear God, I pray that our hearts and minds will be open as we read this passage. Amen. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find it if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. God is good all the time. God is good all the time. Amen, amen. Uh, sometimes it doesn't feel like God is good. Sometimes it feels that things are hard and God is absent and God is not with us and God is not walking with us. God is not providing for us. And I feel that when I feel hungry. How many of you feel, get hangry when you're hungry? Hangry means hunger plus anger. So my wife knows that when I'm hungry, we better get food in my belly because I'm about to bite people's heads off. So I get hangry. Um, but when we get hungry, you know, everything looks good, right? Everything you can eat. Right? I know when I'm hungry, I look at food that other people are eating, and I'm like, Oh, I could just snatch that away. When I'm really hungry, I look at, you know, I even think about eating the popcorn that's left in the chairs after the last movie. I'm going to take that popcorn and eat it. Now with COVID, it's kind of like, actually, we don't, I haven't been to the movie theater since COVID, but hunger, hunger, like physically, we're, we, our mouths water or we, our stomachs pain, um, we want to eat, our body tells us we want to eat when we're hungry, when we're hungry. And um, if, if anything um, in our country and in the world uh, that we've witnessed in the last two years is that we, the world is hungry, that people are hungry, um, that oftentimes there's in some places a dearth of resources Right? A scarcity of resources, whether that's actual food or money or jobs or access to healthcare, access to vaccines, access um, to justice, access to safety and home, um, access to a land uh, to call your own, to be and live uh, without the threat of being removed. Um, access. People are hungry for this. And when a something like COVID-19 shows up, a pandemic shows up when people get into a scarcity mentality or people are afraid. And so those who are in control of the resources begin to hold the resources more tightly. And those who are not uh, 
don't have as much access to resources are, even, are given even less, are even more marginalized, um, we see, we begin to see more clearly the disparities in our culture, in our society, in our world. We begin to see um, the social and economic boundaries and lines, and we even see racial and ethnic lines. Um, and that begins, the worst of us can often rear its ugly head, and we've seen that, right? We've seen that these last couple of years. We've seen that in the news in the States, and we've seen that in our political situation and um, the tensions around race, um, all of that. And um, Jesus, God, holds the world in his hand. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. And, and so in a hungering and thirsting world, the church, we have to offer the world or to witness to the world or testify to the world the good news that is Jesus Christ, amen? We're here to say, look at the God who's told me everything about me. Look at the God who's transformed and renewed my heart. We don't think change, people can change or change can happen. Well, Jesus and the Holy Spirit has moved in my life and changed my heart. That's why we follow Jesus. That's why we come to church. That's why we worship, to celebrate and give praise to who God is, even in the good times and the hard times, um, but to reflect on the renewal um, that we've experienced. And just up the street, there's um, a well, right? The artesian well, where some of the best water in the world, they say, comes out from underground springs, and there's a little pump. And if you go, there's this long line, usually, of people holding multiple big containers, wanting to fill it up. I've noticed that if you go past, when I pass Sunday mornings, it's not as, the line's not as big. So Sunday morning is the time to go. But I might, may have just given up the secret. But that water, that image of the water, when we come into the temple of Christ as the body of Christ, we don't just come into a sanctuary with chairs and nice TV screens and a stage and all of this. We're coming to the living water. Imagine a fountain just of endless pool right behind me and we all come and we drink and drink and drink and drink. That's, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus is here. And when Jesus in first century uh, Palestine was walking on the earth, the people were hungry. The people in Israel were hungry. The common people, the everyday people, the laborers, those who were sick, those who were on the outskirts, on the margins of society, they were hungry. They, they were in a religious state, right? The temple, they could see the glory of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And they went every day or, you know, every week to give their sacrifices, to go and offer up their prayers and sacrifices to God and worship. 
But the system, the temple system, and the religious leaders oftentimes were more busy feeding on the sheep than feeding the sheep. Does that make sense? They were eating the sheep, consuming the resources of the land, busy creating barriers to access to God rather than opening up the paths and opening up the doors to come and worship. That's why when Jesus came, he said to the Pharisees, he was hard on the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, right? He was like, you are the leaders of Israel. You are the shepherds. You're supposed to speak life and offer life to people, not take, not fight for your own uh, platform or your own statuses, but to give. And I came just as a doctor comes and he, to heal the sick, to hang out with the sick and offer help to the sick. I came not for the healthy, but for the sinners, amen? I came to set the prisoners free. I came to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty. And we see that in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, that that's what he was about, touching people, healing people, embracing people, renewing people, restoring people. That's why we call the Gospel good news. The problem is, Sometimes I feel like in a thirsty and hungry world, we're not offering good news as the church, as followers of Jesus, right? When people come to the church or to the community, do they see open arms? Do they see Jesus' love saying, we are, there's water here to drink, there's food here, there's community, there's love. There's joy, there's peace, there's reconciliation, there's inclusion, there's acceptance. Do they experience that or do they experience barriers and dirt and thirst and more pain and suffering and even oppression through the church? I don't know. Sometimes that's what I feel like we have to offer. We, have, we offer hostility before we offer grace and acceptance. Are you with me, church? So our passage, oh, we're in the, huh, strange stories in the Bible. And this is a strange story in the Bible because on the surface level, it seems like Jesus is angry, right? So, in context, this is immediately following Jesus' triumphal entry. So this is, we're headed into Easter, right? This is, the, this is the starting of Holy Week, if you're in the church calendar, right? He enters Jerusalem. The Passion, Passion Week is about to begin. He enters Jerusalem for the final time. People are saying, Hosanna, 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 and the highest. We may celebrate Palm Sunday on that Sunday. Waving, the kids are waving their palm branches. Jesus has come. The king has come. And it says in the verses right immediately preceding this, verse 11 of Mark 11, that Jesus goes into the temple. Uh, it's not on that slide. Jesus goes into the temple and looks around, but it was too late in the evening. So he left with the disciples 
to go to Bethany. Could this be a foreshadow, right? What's on the back of Jesus' mind as he looks around at the temple? This was a detail I missed, but he looks around. But he doesn't do anything. He leaves because it's too late. So something's going on. And Mark is pointing this out. And then our passage, right? Jesus is hungry. They're traveling to Bethany. He sees a fig tree in the distance. It's got all these green leaves on it. And he's like, figs, yes, right? For those of you who eat fig newtons, right? I don't know how much fig newtons and actual figs are similar or taste. Or if they're actually made out of figs, I don't know. Fig newtons. If anyone knows, let me know. Anyways, he sees a a fig tree in the distance. It's got a lot of leaves on it. And he gets there. It says he's hungry. So we're like, Jesus is hungry. And there wasn't any fruit. He's disappointed. So he's upset and he curses, maybe under his breath. He said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then Mark actually adds, again, a a small detail. And his disciples heard him say it. What's up with this? Right? Is Jesus just having a bad day? You know, some, some commentators say, oh, like, Jesus was human, so what's wrong with him? Just, he had his grumpy days. He got hangry, just like the rest of us. Right? So he got mad because he was hungry and there was no fruit. So he curses the tree. Right? James, the disciple, he happened to be, you know, into creation care and you know stewardship of the environment so he's like don't curse the tree jesus in the back of his mind he didn't say it out loud he's like save the trees but jesus it seems on a surface level is being irrationally angry because on top of this mark points out that it was not the season for fruit so Jesus is expecting something that shouldn't be there? Like, how much more irrational is that? He curses the tree when the tree shouldn't even have figs for him to eat. What? Huh? What's wrong with Jesus? Me on the side, I'm like, I get it. You know, when you're hangry, like nothing makes sense out of your mouth. Right? It's like, give me a steak right now. You should have had a steak ready for me, right? Right at this moment. And I'm saying it to Cammy. It's <laughs> like, what? And remember, Mark makes the point to, re- to relay that the disciples heard him say this curse. As if they, they must be thinking, oh my God, is Jesus losing it? Right? Like, it should have been a private moment of Jesus, like an off moment, but he shouldn't have said it out loud. He just cursed the fig tree out. It's a tree! First of all, it's not a person. And that's, it's not even a season for figs. What's up? Come on, Jesus! What's up with you? Is he just having a bad day? Is he just being grumpy, hungry and angry?
Why was Jesus hangry? <laughs> and I've entitled a sermon today, uh, what have I entitled? Jesus figs out? Question mark. Kind of like Jesus, you know, figs out. So what should we make of this? What should we make, glean from this little passage? Let's, let's dig in a little further. The gospel writer Mark, uh, when he wrote his gospels, uh, he had some stylistic characteristics, right? Every gospel writer has a different lens or angle from which they're writing or a different context from which or point of view. And it's almost like if there's four different personality types in the world, four general personality types, the gospel writers each are speaking to those, you know, personality types, whichever they are, right? So there's, you see a mosaic of who Jesus is through the different voices. And for Mark, what makes him stylistically, um, what gives him style, um, one of the things is that when you read the book of Mark, it's very short compared to, relative to the other gospels. So Mark is very concise and to the point. He doesn't waste words, right? And the, the text, the story moves quickly. Uh, you even read in the first couple chapters of Mark, immediately, 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 right? Immediately Jesus went from here to here. Immediately this happened and this happened. Mark wants to get it through. So I call him the Ernest Hemingway of gospel writers. So if you, for all you literature majors, right? Ernest Hemingway, American novelist, uh, we talk about the iceberg theory, right, in writing. Like, he had very simple sentences, very short sentences. And on the surface, it just looks small, iceberg. But underneath, in the subtext, there's a lot more going on. And you have to take the cues and, like, dig in more to see the deeper, more profound meaning. So this is, this is how I see Mark. So that means we have to pay attention to the little things, such as we know that before the, this episode, Mark relays that Jesus took a look around the temple courts, leaving for Bethany only because it was too late. So that's just hanging right there. Okay, we move on. We need to hold that detail in suspension. Mark also gives us the detail that the disciples heard Jesus curse the tree. If Mark hadn't written this detail, right, all of us would assume that they heard it, right? He didn't need to put it in there. We assume when he said it, the disciples were with him, they must have heard him. So Mark, I think Mark is saying this because um, not to reveal like this moment of his hangriness, um, lest that undermine his, his authority, but maybe Mark is offering another clue or a detail for the reader's interpretation. Another clue or detail. So we'll hold that thought. The other stylistic tool that Mark employs is what some call the sandwich technique, right? So in a sandwich, you have bread, meat, bread, or bread, you know, whatever, peanut butter and jelly and bread, right? So there's two buns, bread, that are the same. In the middle is the, the meat of the sandwich. Um, bread, meat, bread. Um, I 
not to be boring like another imagery, Jesus uses the spam musubi technique, right? And, and I'm not talking about like the spam, rice, spam, right? I'm talking about where the, a big chunk of spam is in the middle of two rices, right? Rice layer. So rice, spam, rice. And if, here, I'll go in a little bit how you make spam musubi. Do you guys know how to make spam musubi? If you don't have a real authentic spam maker, you can just use the can, the empty can of spam. So you take the empty can of spam and that, that gel underneath. Some people clean it out. I'm like, use it as like oil. The grease, the can, no, just kidding. Um, okay, some people are nodding their heads. Some people are like, what? What are you talking about? So you take a can of spam, you get rice, hot steaming rice, put that layer down, punch it down, thick piece of spam, put that down. You can't, some people do like tons of rice with thin spam. It's like, you want to eat all these carbs and have no flavor at all with the meat? You need thick spam and thin rice, right? So you put the rice down, thick piece of spam, another layer of spam, and you somehow pound it down. Whether you use a spoon, I use a spoon, use a spoon, pound it down, and then you take a half sheet of seaweed laver, right? Seaweed, sheet of seaweed, cut it in half, put it down, Turn the spam can upside down, boom, 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 until the stuff dry. That's where the spam, like grease gel, comes. Not just kidding, comes into effect. Put it down. Roll up the roll up the uh, seaweed. So then you have a wrap, right, with rice, spam, and and rice. Where was I going with the spam musubi? Oh, sandwich, yeah. So that's my uh, illustration for the mark technique of instead of sandwich, it's rice, spam, or rice, spam, rice. But the seaweed is our interpretive approach. It's how we should hold, how we interpret the sections together, right? So if Mark uses um, rice, spam, rice, we know that the rice are bookending, right, the spam. So that means there's a whole unit that we're talking about here. So our eyes should, or our eyes and our hearts and our thoughts should immediately go to, then what's the spam? Does that make sense? Like, the spam must be the key to the meaning of the text. And so, here we go. In Mark 11, we have our passage, 12 through 14, the fig tree, and Jesus curses the fig tree, right? But then in, verses, and then in verses 20 through 25, they return the next day. Peter sees that the tree in one day has already completely withered, and he says, Jesus, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. And then Jesus goes on, you know, a little lesson, object lesson about faith. So then have faith, have hope, have faith. And God, basically, have faith. if you have faith in me, your sins will be forgiven. So we're like, okay, there's the rice, right? You have rice and rice. What's the spam? And what is the spam? 15 through 19 is a passage we probably all know a lot about is Jesus cleansing the temple, right? Jesus goes into the temple. He sees these money changers, these merchants, 
selling stuff in the middle of the temple during the Passover when, you know, everyone is coming, making their pilgrimage to offer their yearly sacrifices during Passover, and he gets upset. Right? We may be thinking, disciples may be thinking, he's still angry, right? Like, why is he going nuts? Why is he figging out in the temple? Um, the why does Jesus cleanse the temple? What is making Jesus so angry? So angry when he witnesses these merchants in the temple. And a lot of people we we tend to focus on, you know, they're cheating, you know, they're you know, they're cheating people, right? Charging in, in exorbitant prices for animals that need to be used for the sacrifices in the temple, right? That is an element, but where this is happening, remember, it says Jesus went into the court of the temples earlier, checked things out. He probably saw, like, the booze and the tables, right? Ready to go. Jesus checks it out. He moves on. He comes back. He sees everything in live motion. It's in the court of the Gentiles, And this is where the ethnic and racial peace comes in. He's in the court of the Gentiles. And the reason the court of the Gentiles is there in the first place is that's supposed to be the place where the foreigner, not, you know, Jewish, not an Israelite, can come and worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because it's always, in Scripture, it's always been God's heart not that the access to him or his presence would just be for the Israelites, but that they would be his chosen people for the blessing of other people. And there's always contingencies in the Old Testament, in the law, for the foreigner, right? Include the foreigner. Let them become a part of your family, a part of your household. Let them come and worship me. And that was the case for the temple. There was the court of the Gentiles. And all of this market stuff and money changers is happening in the court of the Gentiles. Imagine if, you know, in the sanctuary there were pinball machines and, and uh, what are, slot machines and poker tables and, right, there's TV screens with all the NFL football games going on this morning and people were placing bets, right, in the middle of while we're trying to sing and while we're trying to worship. Imagine that. We would be like, that's messed up. You're bringing worldly things into the temple and you're preventing people from worshiping God. You're actually literally crowding them out. And that's why Jesus says in that passage, in that episode, he quotes Isaiah 56 and says, my temple, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations. We can't miss the scriptural or the cultural and ethnic piece, pieces that, that fly out of scripture. For all nations. And this is a lesson to us. I'll stop right here, a lesson to us. 
Like how as the church do we, because of our preferences or because of our theology, do we keep others who are not like us from having full access to worship alongside us or with us? What are the ways that we um, create obstacles for immigrants, right? Or non-English speaking people to come and worship Jesus? That's just a rhetorical question. Spam, rice, uh, So Isaiah 56, let's look at, Jesus quotes this in the temple cleansing. Let's look at, I just want to read Isaiah 56 real quick. And maybe we'll feel like kind of the heart of the justice. This, Isaiah 56, starting at verse 1, this is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand. And my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing evil. Verse 3, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Remember, eunuchs were considered unclean and unable to enter the temple. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will accept, be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, the sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. It is the heart of God to continue to gather and gather and gather and gather. Everyone, you come to the table. It's like a round table. They say there's, a chair, there's always another chair you can add to a round table, Right? Come in. Oh, you, come in. You, come in. Come in. And what fires Jesus up is you're stopping the come inness. Right? I, the Lord, am a hospitable, welcoming, gathering God, and you're stopping the hospitality. You're blocking people. And that really gets me mad. It's almost as if you look like a fruitful tree, you look like you're doing are righteous and doing what you're supposed to be doing, but when you go a little closer, there's no fruit. 
And so I will curse that tree because it bears no fruit. Are you with me, church? Uh, Can you go to the fig tree in the fall? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the, uh, obviously the bottom rice is, you know, that the part where they come back to the tree, it's completely, um, withered. And the temple cleansing is the middle of the span, just in case we're wondering. So this episode with the fig tree, uh, rather than kind of analyzing, why would Jesus be so mad and irrationally like wither a tree for no reason? Like, isn't he, Right? Isn't he a God of creation? Wouldn't he take care of things? Um, the, uh, the episode with the fig tree is what is called an enacted parable. Right? Sometimes Jesus actually told stories, told parables that represented what the kingdom of God was like. Other times, he actually acted out the parable in real time. And so the fig tree is just a... It, I wish I had a fig tree right here. It would be my illustration, my object lesson, right? That the fig tree is Jesus' illustration for the whole spam musubi. Right? Got it? (laughs) In the life cycle of a fig tree, there would be times when it would not bear fruit. So I looked up a little of this. Why? It could not bear fruit, not bear figs because of water stress. Um, or there's too much nitrogen in the soil, or simply because of the age of the tree. So a fig tree, when it's first planted, it takes at least three years uh, for it to actually start to um, have figs. So it'll have its leaves and stuff like that, but it takes at least three years for figs to start uh, on the mature tree. Um, And also, um, so there's like... a I forgot what it was called. Where's the word? Where's the word? So in the spring, remember, we're at the last week of Jesus, so it's early April probably. It's spring, Easter. Um, in the spring, fig trees will put out little knobs, like smaller knobs um, that come from uh, the uh, last year's blooms, Right? And these knobs have a lot of nutrients and they're, you know, really, you know, they come out in the spring, basically. I'm looking for the word still. Breba, breba. Um, These are the breba. And so that'll come out in the spring. But in late summer or fall, um, figs will actually, the figs will actually come out. So we're in springtime. Jesus is expecting breba, right? It's very... It's very green. The leaves are out. He, he sees it from a distance. He's like, yes, yes, I can pick those little knobs off and eat them. And it doesn't have that. The tree shows life and potential, but in reality, it has no nutrient and it has no fruit. And this is Jesus' constant condemnation of the religious leaders, right? And temple system. You show the signs of righteousness and holiness, 
You show the signs of goodness and spirituality, but you are fruitless. The religious leaders, rather than providing sustenance and feeding their sheep, have been eating the sheep and sucking the life out of the land. Israel as a whole was to be a blessing to all nations. God's heart is for all nations and tongues to worship him. But in crowding the court of the Gentiles with robbers and thieves, this witness is shut down. So Adam and Eve, what does Adam and Eve have to do with anything? Actually, have you read Adam and Eve when they eat the fruit of the tree of what a knowledge of good and evil, is it? Or some people call it the tree of death. Um, what type of tree is it? It's a fig tree. Do you know that? So verse 6, uh, chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it, some, and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. So here's this connection of green fig leaves connected to covering, right? Covering their shame, covering their nakedness. But if, we're going, if we fast forward to Jesus' enacted parable, it's like the covering of nothingness, right? Fruitlessness, right? The appearance of fruitfulness, but it's fruitlessness. And actually, it wasn't God's intent. God's intent was for people to be naked, if you, if you call that vulnerability, to be open and vulnerable before him. To be walking with, it said, man and women walked with the Lord, right, in the garden, right? Open and vulnerable. But they turn to their own devices, to their own sewing, to cover because they feel ashamed. And so... The initial intent is that we would trust God. Humanity would trust God for provision, for sustenance, for renewal, for salvation, right? But sometime, somewhere along the way, we trusted in our own ability. We trusted uh, in fig leaves to protect us and cover us. When that was not the original intent. Are you with me, church? The grace of God is, one, God said they would surely die if they ate of the fruit. They don't die. He doesn't take their lives. Secondly, doesn't God make them better clothing after that? Right? So he does provide for them in the midst of their own sin. So Jesus makes an example of this fig tree um, as a commentary, I think, first of the temple system. Jesus is saying with his righteous anger that Israel is like the fruitless tree, that the temple is actually done and dead, 
And that's why he was crucified. That was the like, what do you call it? Tipping point um, for him to be crucified, right? It was the cleansing in the temple and the fact that he said, you know, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. Because basically Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. I'm the new covenant. I'm the new temple. So this, this is done. And so I feel like the parable of the pig tree, pig tree, fig tree is saying the temple, Jesus is entering in, in, ushering in a new covenant, a new reality. No more is the temple system. Now the place of people's redemption, renewal, salvation, and restoration and transformation is in me. Amen? And so Jesus is, some people say, the second Adam. Gone is the fig tree. Now, as he says to the disciples at the end, trust in God. Trust in me. Trust in me. I will cover you. I will sustain you. I will provide for you. I will feed you. In me is life everlasting. I'm not going to eat you up or steal from you or manipulate you. I I'm actually going to give my life for you. Amen. This is good news. The parable of the fig tree is a parable of good news. Right? Jesus curses the fig tree to say, that stuff, that system, it's not working. You're not getting life. Life is going to go run through me now. It's going to run through me. How do we, okay, next slide, last slide. On a personal level, how do we engage with this? One, I mean, one, uh, other places that we see fruit in scripture, right? There's the famous Galatians 5.22, right? But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law what is fruit right we know what fruitlessness me is what is life and fruitfulness here's an example of what the fruits of the spirit are the love the joy and the peace and so the questions we can ask is are we experiencing love in our life are we experiencing joy in our life Are we experiencing peace, kindness, goodness? The big ones are the last last few for me. Gentleness and self-control. Right? Are you experiencing real change in your life? That's a good way to know that you are following Jesus, abiding in Jesus. Because Jesus is not powerless. Right? When you follow Jesus, you will be transformed. When you follow Jesus, you will bear fruit. When you follow Jesus, you will grow. When you follow Jesus, you will experience change. Has your character changed? Are you growing in love? Have you been gaining more joy and self-control? When we are in Jesus and receiving from the Spirit, we bear fruit. When, um, 
when we don't have that life and that power, I think we tend to compensate, right? At least I know, like, as a pastor, I feel, as a religious leader, I feel like I have to be a model. I have to keep it up, right? I have to be good and spiritual. And when I'm not feeling that power, I compensate by showing my leaves, right? What does that look like? We fake the funk on a nasty dunk. I fake it. I go through the motions. Or worse, I, I lead, I serve, I share with hypocrisy. And I don't share what's really going on with people around me. I hide it. So on a corporate level, as a church, are we bearing fruit in our own witness? Are we living out our mission and vision, being a witness of the gospel, being renewed by God for the renewal of our neighborhoods? Are we being faithful in that? Are we bearing fruit? What that would mean for, uh, for a church or for us to be bearing fruit would mean that we're not making God's church a den of thieves and robbers, right? And following other agendas rather than gathering people to the life that is in Jesus Christ, where people are excluded and denied access. But instead, we're opening our witness to all people in the streets, in the parking lot, in the fields, in the marketplace. We're opening our witness to all people. As Isaiah points out, we are participating in God's justice. Nine, out of, nine times out of ten, when we're not listening and submitting to God and the Holy Spirit as a church, we are pursuing other things. Growth for growth's sake. Renown as a church. Comfort in each of our roles and leadership statuses or whatever, our place in the church, that comfort. Or, or simply maintaining comfort, right? Like, I don't want to have to do too much. I, I feel good coming to church and you got your donuts, the, Got the coffee I like. I like saying hi to people. You know. Uh, we're growth for growth's own sake. Renown as a church. Comfort in our roles. Uh, maintaining comfort. Protecting tradition. And our cultural preferences when it comes to church. What kind of worship music do we have? You know, how should one dress? Do you have pews or chairs or couches? Or do you have all three? (laughs) Or are we pursuing money and the bottom line? Right? It's hard not to chase the bottom line, the financial bottom line, when you're making decisions in the church. It, It really is a real thing. So the question I want to leave you with, what is getting in the way of you and all of us from bearing fruit? So as you go from this place, reflect on that question.
Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your life is a parable to us and that you told um, this parable of the fig tree and there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of details, there's a lot of things, uh, even mystery. Um, continue to unfold meaning from these words, from your words, um, into our hearts and our lives as we go from this place. Continue to reveal new jewels that spring forth, new waters that burst open in our heart as we meditate on your word. In Jesus' name, amen.